0: If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts,
1: come grab a drink and join the choir,
2: it's Heretic Happy
1: Hour. Well, well, well. Welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, everyone. But We have a great episode in store for you. My name is Keith Giles, and we are... Uh, Just continuing our series that we're doing on the Pillars of the Christian Faith. Uh, Today's episode is going to be pretty cool. We're going to get into the crucifixion and why did Jesus have to die and all that. So we're looking forward to that. But um, first, quick introductions. Again, my name is Keith Giles. Uh, I am the author of the Jesus Un series. uh, Recently released, Jesus Unforsaken, Substituting Divine Wrath with Unrelenting Love. And soon to be released, the final, yes, final book in the seven, seven book series. Uh, Jesus Unseries series will be Jesus Unarmed, How the Prince of Peace Disarms Our Violence. Uh, the Ford is by John Fugelsang. comes out November 9th, my birthday, super excited about all that. And um, yeah, good stuff. And I am joined by my co-hosts, uh, Matt, Derek, and Katie. Say hello. Hello,
0: I'm Katie Valentine. I'm the author of Sex, Slavery, and Self-Control, but I have a question for Keith. Keith, this series has seven books. That seems like a very biblical number. Is that intentional or is that
1: just the way the cookie crumbled? It's, well, it's, uh, it's the way the publisher wanted it. I would have been happy to end it with six and do a Latin, the Unforsaken be the last one. And he was like, oh no, you got to do a seventh book. Seven is a perfect number. And I'm like, whatever. <laughs> so so there you go. That's the reason why. Matt, if you look, and Matt, you, got, you can, can back me up on this. Ralph really cares about dates. He's really big on like release dates. You can't just pick a random release date. It has to be the anniversary of Martin Luther nailing something to the door, or it's got to be the beginning of the Reformation. Like the dates all have to be something really cool and special. Like Jamal Jabanji's book, Free to Love, had to be on Valentine's Day uh, release date. So like he cares about those things. And I guess that's what makes Ralph special.
0: I look very forward to this uh, when, I, when I am writing for choir because I really like those kind of synchronicities and... Yes Astro the number numerical significance So um, yeah, I'm Katie Valentine. you heard my book already. Uh, I have to say I'm excited about today's episode. I was thinking about it today because I was wandering around London because I got stuck here for two days. It's not a bad place to be stuck but I actually went to a church service, a noonday church service and there was a lot of kind of sacrificial language in there And so yeah this is what I this is what I do on my vacations. I go to have communion. Wow. wow. <laughs> at an Anglican church. it I was at St. Martin's. a
1: museum or something. You know?
0: I, I did that too. I did that okay, too. But hi. I went to St. Martin in the field for their noonday uh, service. It was actually very, very pleasant. But it's Anglican. There's a lot of sacrificial language. So I'm prepared and ready.
3: Sweet. Thank you, Katie. And I am Derek Day, the author of Deconstructing Religion and the blogger of the Love Minus Religion blog. And I promise, Keith, that I will have a blog post this week. And uh, also, I am the co-host of the Freeology Friday Facebook Live with Aaron Tomlinson, which is a shit hot podcast or not podcast, but Facebook Live on Friday nights. <laughs> so if you if you want to uh, uh, get some freedom from theology and pour up a drink, and you know it's a good place to be. And I'm also the founder and host of the Forward Podcast, and that be me and Keith. I'm actually looking for book number eight, Jesus Undressed.
1: <laughs> well, there will be a book number eight, but not in the series. Uh, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to writing a book that isn't part of a series. I, I, It feels like freedom. You know what I mean? Like, oh, my gosh, I can just t- call it whatever I want. It doesn't have to fall into any kind of a series or, you know, anything like that. I can just like totally start with a blank slate. So I'm, I'm yeah. excited about that. Keith is und the from book. the und. Uh, yes, I'm un,
3: un.: Well, you know what there, there's a book, and I, and I love it. I can't remember the name of the author, but it's called "How to Get Unfucked." Right? And I think that would be a, that would be a great title, "Jesus, Unfucked," because if you, if you ever want to get out of the whole religious, you know uh, black hole, that'd be a great place to do it. I think
4: Matt should write that book. That sounds like something I would write.: Yes. Well, hey, yes, be, maybe be, maybe Matt and I could do that. That would be fun. Yeah, we might have to talk about that.
3: Yeah, write a book with my literary hero.
4: There you go. Um, well, yeah, Keith, you mentioned synchronicity yesterday. Did you know the bonfire sessions was originally released on 420. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> nice. Interpret that however you may. I, there but is yes. no
0: interpretation needed whatsoever. <laughs> I, I, I
4: know.
1: <laughs> I get it. So
4: I am. I am Matt DeStefano. Um. I. Uh, where were we talking about that blog that one of us was going to write uh, about? If you believe in hell and there's an agent of accountability, we need to. Uh, you, you can make the case to. Yeah, last episode, right. last episode, oh, yeah,
1: yeah. I last dared episode. you, I dared you to write that blog post. I
4: did, so I wrote it. It's, <laughs> oh on, gosh. it's, it's on Patheos for our listeners. If you want to go check that out, it's
1: going to be your best one ever. I'm sure it'll be the most read, no, shared. It's going
4: I'm gonna, I'm gonna have Patheos administration be emailing no, right. me shortly, <laughs> saying, "Hey, <laughs> you can't, you can't write this." But this, uh, this will be an interesting episode. I know we've probably touched on the issue that we're going to talk about today, but we're going to get into it uh, a little more uh, later. But Derek, do you have uh, something to get us rolling?
3: I sure do, Matt. Thank you. And if you want to get in touch with the Heretic Happy Hour, you can do so by dialing 240-343-7379. Once again, use the finger dexterity of your pointers to dial 240-343-7379. And we have a text message, roll that beautiful text footage, and it reads, Hey guys, I had another idea for a podcast topic. to wannabe producer. <laughs> Did early Christians border on being a cult? Have you seen this piece from David Bentley Hart, and the link is given here? I don't really like calling myself a Christian, possibly due to cowardice, Possibly due to how fucked up Western evangelical evangelicalism is? It's a mix, really. But I used to do this thing where I would imagine that people closer to Jesus' time went through way more than me. And where I really don't do anything. You guys have touched on ancient Christianity at various points. But where what Hart is saying here really, he spelled it out, really reminds of some cult-like structuring giving away all your worldly possessions, and because Jesus was coming back to tomorrow, caring for those in needs, enduring enduring horrific persecution, on the one hand, so amazing. On the other hand, how difficult would it have been to leave after aligning yourself with this group? And when people today try to practice this extreme living, the results are just bad. And he gives a link for that too. And he doesn't say who he is.
4: Uh, well that was my it? yes, that was uh one of our actually one of our Patreon subscribers, Sam. So I, I forgot I forgot to post that in, but that's Sam from the Patreon community.
1: Well, uh thanks so much, Sam. Love, love that text. As long as that was, man, talking about finger dexterity, man. You were your thumbs must be really hurting after that long text, but thank you. Well, that's a good question. I mean, I guess right off the bat, uh, did early Christians border on being a cult? Well, if you ask the Jewish People of the day, they would say, oh, yes, of course they were a home." What are you talking about? Uh, but uh, but I, I think I know what you mean. I, have looked, I did look at that article, and David Bentley Hart, even in the introduction to his New Testament, mentions that. Actually, one of my favorite parts of the introduction, he says, Throughout the history of the church, Christians have a keenly desire to believe that the New Testament affirms the kind of people they are, rather than, as is actually the case, the kind of people they are not and really would not ever want to be and uh emphasizing just how radical and strange those first century christians really were uh and i'm sure that's what the article is going into detail about about yeah it was um it was a pretty radical i mean radical even for a radical uh group of people so yeah on one level kind of cult like of course i guess yeah and certainly there, even the romans at the time probably looked at those guys and said they're nuts because the way they acted, everything they did was completely different from everyone around them. Yeah, and it makes me. It reminds me also of this idea of like whether or not you know the whole thing about the name of Christian. Because to take the name Christian is either like today, is either to say that you're like those people, which of course we're not. I'm not even close. Or you know, like the the modern association the connotation with the name Christian, typically. For most people, it's like when you say you're a Christian, they think, "Oh, you're like the guy with the big hair on TBN that's begging for money." <laughs> um, so neither one of those are true, really, of most Christians today. So the whole the the term Christian is one that's very difficult sometimes to figure out. What do you mean? And what is? How does it apply? And uh, maybe that's a whole other podcast.
0: So I uh, yeah, Sam, thank you for the question. I haven't had a chance to read the article, so I'm going. I'm just kind of on my own, uh, my own knowledge. Early, you know, some of the things that you describe about like asceticism, um, giving art or giving items away, um, kind of this close insular kinship that early Christians uh, formed. This is not unlike many, many other groups in the ancient world. So in some sense, early Christians fit right in. Um, you could look at early Christians and say, oh, gosh, they looked a lot like that group. They looked a lot like that group. They looked a lot like that group, all of whom were practicing kind of similar um, Practices, Not similar beliefs, but similar practices. And so I don't know that they would have been any more sort of cult-like than that devotees to ISIS, uh, for instance, or
3: Ooh.
0: whoever. Um, there's, there's other similar groups in the ancient world. Um, you know, when you... So when we talk about it that way, um, probably not. I think the thing that Jesus followers did in the ancient world, and especially in the first, second century was that they actually gave up their family security. Because when they became a Jesus follower, they gave up their pagan um, identifiers. And that provided a whole network of support in terms of temple, in terms of family, in terms of social structure, to follow this person, they must have been very compelled to, to follow this person named Jesus. And that's the part that separated them very much, um, from their community. So that could, I think that, you know, you could make the case in that sense that it's cult light because that separation, um, could make it hard to go back. Um, of course, there's a lot of other things like brainwashing that go into cult. I, I don't think early Christians were doing that any more than any other groups. You always got a bad apple or two. But it's kind of a fascinating question to think about. Um, but what we know today is that within every religion or spirituality or some or political group, there's always the cult like groups that form. So, did ancient Christianity have those groups? I'm sure, because, you know, they're people. But any more than anyone else, um, I don't know, and I, I don't, I don't know that we have the evidence for it uh, one way or the other. But I love thinking about it. Yeah, I would say
4: um, that. Christianity, correct me if I'm wrong, was a, a bunch of different Jesus communities or tradition communities. So if it was cult-like, it would have been different cults within the faith, not because typically I think when we think of a cult, there's like one leader and one group and they all have one belief. And, and so it's, it's very, a, a lot of times in, in modern cults, they even live on a compound or something like that. So maybe some cult-like things in the different Jesus community, but like, you know, the, the, um, the different communities had some different beliefs from one another, if, if I'm correct about the early history, is that, you know, that you know, John's community would have different beliefs than other communities that were following the Jesus tradition. So in that way, I'd say Christianity wasn't a cult, but maybe there were cult-like behaviors within each of the groups.
3: Well, Sam, I want to thank you uh, for a couple of things. First of all, I don't like calling myself a Christian either. And do you know that that term Christian, when it was used at Antioch, was a pejorative. It was mocking. It was not a compliment. And and I I find it funny how Christians identify themselves as that. Uh, and I also agree with you that Western evangelicalism. I was struggling with that word when I was reading it. Is actually it really is fucked up. So I agree with you on that. Um, as for uh, cultish. Um, I would say that overall, probably not. It was, you know, it was a a religious movement for sure. I, I think that there may have been some cultishness around the cult of Paul. Uh, more on that at another time. But uh, overall, I, 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 you know, I'm I haven't read uh, completely the piece by David Bentley Hart, but I'm uh, basically on point with its premise. And um I, I I don't think that um I wouldn't call it a, I wouldn't call it a cult, but I would say that it it, it you you had some of the earmarks or hallmarks of, of cultish behavior, uh particularly around the followers of Paul, but beyond that, mm, no, uh and and to your point that when people try to practice that today, I always think of Waco and Georgetown. <laughs> You know, it's like those are the, Jonestown, thank you. But those, those are the two that, um, that come to mind when I, when I think about the extreme trying to mimic the first century church thing.
4: Yeah, before we move on, as an aside, I will plug Dan Cummins' Time Suck podcast, which if you're into cults, and he's a comedian, but he he dorks out on history, he does a lot of stuff on cults that you haven't heard of, and there's some wacky fucking stories.
1: that sounds like a great idea for a series in the future. We should do a series on cults. Ooh. Yeah,
4: yeah, that'd be fun.
0: I can get into that. Well, quite the opposite of cults or a cult leader we have a fantastic heretic of the week uh, this week. Y'all are going to be blown away. Buckle your seatbelts, get ready for this ride. Um, you are going to love hearing from this amazing heretic.
2: It's the heretic of the week. Hi, I'm Diana Butler Bass.
4: And you're a heretic. Uh,
2: Yeah, I forgot to say that, but uh, yes, I am a heretic. (gasps) Many people have said that I'm a heretic. (laughs) Hi, Hi, Diana! Diana.
1: Uh, We are, believe it or not, we are super excited, Diana, to have you uh, as our heretic of the week. Uh, This is really a blessing. Um, So, wow. So, uh. Yes, I, I think you can, You feel our pain a little bit. We were talking before we hit record here a little bit about this whole being called a heretic thing. So uh, our first question is typically uh, along those lines, why is it that some people would consider you or have called you a heretic?
2: Well, you know, I've had to think about that a lot. It's it's strange because my husband thinks I'm like really orthodox. I mean, he grew, he grew up a liberal Presbyterian and he just laughs. Whenever somebody says you're that I'm a that I'm a heretic, but I, I suspect it comes from the fact that I'm a writer and I'm not ordained. And so what that means is I have a tremendous amount of freedom to express ideas and all kinds of words that are just beautiful and not necessarily conventionally theological words. And I don't really feel bound to you know, any vows or any one tradition that I have to give assent to or have a bishop looking over my shoulder. So I literally say what I think. And um, I work a lot out of my experience and I strive, I mean, I really strive to tell stories around the Christian tradition uh, that are fresh and different and come from a, a, an angle that most people haven't heard before. So I think all of that, the different language, the fact that I don't necessarily feel like I am obligated to, uh, give anybody, you know, sort of my, my ultimate loyalty in the sense that an institution or a bishop or something like that. And that I love words like poets and writers do. And, um, that gets me in trouble.
4: Does, I know you're pretty active on Twitter. Does it get you in trouble mainly on Twitter or elsewhere? Uh, or else? Oh, it gets elsewhere? me in
2: trouble lots of different places. <laughs> it does. It definitely gets <laughs> me in trouble on social media. As a matter of fact, when we're recording this, this is the second anniversary of the worst Twitter attack that ever happened to me. And if you think that people don't pay attention to things like that, I just literally said it was the second anniversary of the worst Twitter attack that ever happened to me. I mean, you have the date emblazoned in your brain. I really your brain. do. I feel. I feel every year when it comes back, this sort of essential trauma, and I am afraid to go anywhere near Twitter that somebody would remember it. But um, it was a time when I defended a friend of mine who was a Presbyterian minister, and she had quoted. Uh, I think it was Paul Tillich's, yeah, it was his book, Dynamics of Faith. And she said, oh, I love being a Presbyterian. There's such freedom. You don't necessarily have to believe in a literal bodily resurrection in order to be a Christian. And I sort of came in and said, yeah, that's it's that's what the sort of liberal Protestantism is all about, is that we have a latitude of beliefs about these these things. And for two weeks following that. Uh, my friend, her name is Carol. Carol and I had the worst experience on Twitter that you can possibly imagine. I got to the point where I was afraid to to touch my computer. I mean, it was, it was, it was truly terrible. So that was, that was probably one of the worst times I ever had being called a heretic. But then I got to the point where these people were just, they were mean. And all kinds of other things. I was like, I was glad they were calling me a heretic because I didn't really want to be on their team. Frankly.
0: I, I feel like this is somewhat of a challenge. Like maybe after this episode, we can up that game with the heresy and see what else, see what other firestorms could happen, but in a, a, hopefully a more healthy and constructive way. Um, well, so Diana, you've been so active with with your writing, and if i if, if this is correct, it seems like since the early 2000s um, you've just been contributing and and you know with your words with your ideas to the community. um Can you tell us a little bit about how you arrived here, how you arrived in this space of talking about religion, talking about um, these spiritual experiences? Where would
2: you come from and and how did you end up here? Well, I started out that i I just wanted to be a college professor. I mean, that was my big dream. And I got a PhD in American religious history from Duke. And uh, my very first ever job, I was hired by an evangelical college in California. And it was the same um, college that I'd gone to as an undergraduate. And I was there in the early 90s. And at that point, I... I really wanted to be sort of like the, the first female theologian in the evangelical world who would, you know, write books that went beyond the academy, but that influenced church people and that made a difference, got, got sort of evangelicals to understand theology afresh. And, um, so, so that was my dream. And within just a few months of arriving at that college, I was talking about being called a heretic. <laughs> this has been a long long journey of being a heretic for me is that um the uh, the college was in such a different place than when i had been a student and there had almost been like a right wing takeover of um the student body and it, i had graduated in 1981 which was right at the very beginning of the religious right the moral majority and i came back in 91 and in that 10 years evangelicalism in california had changed so remarkably from being open and progressive and oriented towards liberation theology and latin america and of uh, feminist and engaged in issues around the gay community all of that was happening in the 70s and it sort of just came to a screeching halt right around 1980 1981 and so then i went away i went away to graduate school i got went to seminary, got a PhD, came back to California. And it was literally like somebody dropped me off into the past. I I didn't know how it was that evangelicalism in California could change so much in such a short period of time. And so I had come back home expecting this sort of wide open embrace of being a woman who was teaching theology and church history and that the church and the communities there were ready for the leadership of women. And boy, that was not what was going on at all. And and so so that if that series of that that event, I eventually um, I'm trying to always think of the polite way to say it, but there is no polite way to say it. They fired me. This is heretic happy hour. You don't have to be polite. It's well, well, You know, so what <laughs> they do in in, in um, academia is they say we did not renew her contract. So they're very they're very polite mm-hmm. about it. But that means your, your
0: line has been <laughs> That's cut. Right. Yes. That means
2: you're going to be pushing your Carl Bart collection in a grocery cart down at the beach <laughs> is what that means. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But before the days of eBay, well, that could be worth something. <laughs> That's yeah. right. right. I was really terrified that I was going to be homeless, you know, living in Santa Barbara with nothing but a bunch of books. And I wound up living in a garage apartment that costs $500 a month trying to figure out what to do. And it, I mean, this goes with the question, you know, how did you become this? Well, it just so happened that as I got fired from the evangelical college and was terrified that I had was going to have nothing to eat, um, the editor of the local newspaper, uh, the Santa Barbara News Press, uh, this guy Alan Parsons was his name. He was this old-fashioned a newspaper man. And he heard that I was... You know what, wait, wait, I think I've got, I think I have some of his albums. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that guy's really cool. I like him. <laughs> he probably is that type of guy too. I wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't put it past a moment that he was probably in a rock band in the 60s. And so, <laughs> uh, so wait, well, he is just a great guy. And he heard, you know, that I got fired. And I had done a little writing for the newspaper. And he, he called me up, took me out to lunch. And he, he said, hey, I hear you're in a lot of trouble at the college um, maybe you ever thought about becoming a newspaper columnist? And I said, not, not really. And he said, well, you know, there are very few columnists writing about religion and there are no women writing about religion. Um, and if you want to, I'll teach you how to do this. And I said, sure. And so that's my first job in public writing was this weekly newspaper column. I had 14 inches every single Sunday in the Santa Barbara News Press. This is when we actually counted things in inches and there was like an an actual real physical newspaper. And so- um, it was, it was uh, amazing. I got to write uh, basically whatever I wanted to write. I wrote about the religious right. I wrote about promise keepers. I wrote about Christian feminism. I wrote about uh, the renewal of a couple really liberal churches in Santa Barbara. All these themes that later become themes of my work, um, are back in those columns in some dusty archive in uh, a library in Santa Barbara. and. Um, because I was doing that and the news press then was owned by the New York times, uh, one weekend, literally there was a, um, guy who was in charge of the sort of the, the, what would you call it? All of the regional newspapers of the New York times. He was a very big wig at the New York times. And he came into town and a bunch of us went out and I got a call. Uh, two days later, from my editor in Santa Barbara. And he said, you really impressed this guy at the New York Times. Uh, they'd like to take your column national. Wow. And I I literally felt like I was like Lana Turner in the 1940s, sitting on a drugstore <laughs> bench, you know, having some Hollywood guy come by and, and discover me. Um, but uh, that was what happened, is that I literally got fired from the evangelical college. And all of a sudden, this other possibility opened up for me that I never imagined. And I began pursuing this life of writing f- about faith and theology and changes in religion and trends in spirituality and religion in public. And um, so so I was, I was sort of dogged by these charges of heresy when I was at the college. And then when I was writing for the newspaper, I started getting all of my first hate mail, including my first death threats, my very first, Ooh, my very first ever death threat. You guys will love this. Um, came from writing a promise keepers column. Um, I attended promise keepers at the Los Angeles Coliseum where I. Oh, <laughs> bless you. Good Lord. The fortitude. My, my then, uh, boyfriend who is hmm. now my, my husband that I've been married to for 20, 23 years. Um, he, uh, <laughs> he went with me to this event and he could go into the stadium. But I had to go into the press box and there were only like two women in the press box and there was everybody else were, were men. And my husband, who is a very smart alecky guy, he, we drove up to the Coliseum and he goes, OK, well, here we go. We got the Coliseum and we, we got all these Christian guys. Where are the lions? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, honey, uh, you're going to be down there with them. So maybe you can, be, you'll you'll provide a little of that sort of energy. And uh, so he was with the, the crowd, but I had to be, you know, away because I was female. So I couldn't, I couldn't mix with them. And of course. Um, of course. the best. There were two great parts about it. One is when I had to go to the bathroom and I walked out of the press box and all of the bathrooms in the whole of the Los Angeles Coliseum, they'd taken butcher paper and they'd covered up the W.O.s and they'd made all of the bathrooms just men's rooms. And so to to be fair, I do this on women's (laughs) retreats. But the other way around. The other around. Yes, I am. Well, yeah, it yeah, was a yeah, little, sucks to have nowhere to it go. Was to was a little hard in the LA Coliseum, so I had yeah. to go, and I literally waited for one of the bathrooms to empty out, and I tore down the butcher paper and I turned it back into a ladies' room. Right. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, it was a, it was a really weird experience, and um, I wrote about it for the paper and it was carried in a whole bunch of different places. So after the column shows up, I go to my, my mailbox and this is when you used to get letters as hate mail. And I opened this one letter and the first line was, Dear Diana, Promise Keepers is all about love, you bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you saved that letter. <laughs> it's framed right I, I behind her. I think I did. It's <laughs> probably in a
0: box in storage. Next next to your yeah. degree. Promise Keepers
1: is all about love, yep.
2: you bitch.
1: <laughs> and so that was the very
2: beginning of my career. You know, you kind of get used to it. <laughs> oh my
1: gosh! Yeah.
4: Well, the the amazing part about all of that is that we really have the religious conservative right to thank for oh Diana Butler Bass.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I,
4: you yeah, if you hadn't got fired, right? I mean, where would you be today? That's
0: right. Yeah, you'd be. You might be the most popular professor at that college. But I kind of wonder if you. I don't know. I mean, who knows? Would you have stayed more in that world, like being think? a leading voice in that you know, world?
2: You know, I've yeah, thought exactly. about that question occasionally through the years, and i I literally can't imagine my life if I had stayed. I mean, it, it just wouldn't. You know what?
1: You probably would have gotten fired eventually. Uh, if it wasn't one thing, it would have been the other, right? At some point, you would have said something or, uh, you know, uh, it probably would have happened eventually. Also, it's the best alt-act story I've ever heard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> being, being recruited by a newspaper, I love
2: it. I, I just, it was what happened. And, uh, you know, it's it's it was unlikely and strange and everything else. And, and so, you know, people always think, oh, you know, did you wind up, you like hating Christianity or anything. I was always like, no, <laughs> I, was, I was trying to figure out how to be a Christian. I kept, uh, and the, there's a part of me that is always kind of a little naive. I, I went into this evangelical college in 1991 and I I literally thought, oh, they're going to be so happy that they have a woman who's teaching and that everything will be great and wonderful and that I can say whatever I want and everything is going to be changed. And that that wasn't the case at all. And And so there was always this very strange thing about me and evangelicalism and belief and also being a Christian is that I never ran up against an edge where I thought, you know, I just don't believe this or it's superstition or it's incredible or or something that was really negative about the theology or about Jesus. What it was is I kept running into people that betrayed my trust and were really terrible to me and took advantage, I think, of a certain level of that naivete. And so, so when I sometimes hear people talk about their, you know, Deconstruction experiences it's based more around sort of intellectual questions and, and I would say for the for myself, the biggest intellectual question that I ran into was that the people who I kept uh, who 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 were terrible to me were always the people who were the most orthodox, and the people who I ran into in my life who were the most generous people who actually, you know, love their neighbor as themselves and treated people with compassion, empathy and all this sort of stuff where people had really kind of squishy beliefs. And that whole, that whole, the question for me was why is that the case? Why, why do I keep meeting these sort of, you know, rat fink, people who are really as nasty as they can possibly be, but they pride themselves on having right doctrine. And the people who are just like relaxed into their, their Christian faith um, or their faith or their Jewish faith or, or being secular um, actually are acting more like Jesus. And so that was, that was for me, the sort of the, the big crash moment. And um didn't necessarily mean for me that I ever lost faith. It just meant that I really have struggled with the issue of hypocrisy um, and haven't really wanted to be one because I know it's a really terrible thing to do to people. And, you know, we're all a little bit hypocritical. I'd rather be a heretic than a hypocrite. Right? Oh, I like that. There's oh. a
1: quote. There's a t shirt right there.
0: Was, that needs to go on a pillow.
1: Yes, it should go on a pillow. So, in your newest book, uh, Diana, Freeing Jesus, uh, you kind of Freeman around this question, I think, kind of informed by what you kind of just told us a little bit, you know the experiences that you had um, that a lot of our listeners can relate to, this whole question of, after all that, how can you still call yourself a Christian? and um, can you talk a little bit about that, like how you answer that question and you know, not just in your book but also just in your life? I mean how because you're not the only one asking that question, a lot of people are really wrestling and struggling with. Uh, what to do with that, and and really, like, what do they do with
2: Jesus after this? Yeah, well, that's certainly what the polls show us, isn't it? That millions and millions of people are struggling with this question right now. Um, For me, I think that the primary answer is the fact that being a Christian is not a static thing. You think that being a Christian is a A a life of ritual that never changes. You know, you these certain things that you do all the time. Or if you think that Christianity is an unwavering commitment to a particular doctrinal stance, um, it's. I think there are a lot of people who have this idea that you know, once that that being Christian is like one reality, um, one experience, one thing, and they don't allow for growth and change and transformation and so the thing that has kept me christian is the fact that i understand christianity to be something that does change through time it's it's and if if it changes historically it's not the same faith that people had in the first you know 10 15 years after jesus died it's not the same faith of the church fathers in the fourth century. It's not the same thing as it was in the Middle Ages. So, so as a historian, I understand change over time. And, and I, I love change over time. I think that's where the dynamism of human culture comes from. And that, that change over time is where a lot of our hope is located, that we don't stay the same, that we can grow, that we can see mistakes we made in the past, that we can do better in the future, um, all of that is just part of the, the warp and wolf of being a historian is that you understand the flow and the, the fluidity of human experience. And so that meant when I ran into problems with Christianity and, you know, the, the heretics versus the hypocrites kind of thing, um, my inclination was to say well you know these are people who are holding on to a very singular idea of what christianity is and they've essentially turned that into a you know a i guess a almost like an idol but certainly they've turned it into a a club you know to use a less charged word and that if you don't you know sign on the right dotted line, you can't be a member of the club. It's an unchanging reality for them. And, um, it's just not that for me. It's just, it's, it's just not.
4: Well, Dana, I know, uh, we're really grateful for your work and, um, and in your books and Keith mentioned one of them. Um, and I know our listeners are going to want to check that out. So I, I'm sure, um, mo- I'm sure our listeners, at least some of them follow you, but, uh, where, where can you, uh, where can people follow you? Where can they get a hold of your books and, and your other work? Uh,
2: well, I do have a website, like most writers do. It's just my name, Diana Butler Bass. And you can go over there and look up a whole bunch of stuff. Um, the, the, best places I think to follow me in what I'm thinking on any given day is to check out what I'm posting on Twitter. And again, it's just a Diana Butler Bass, but I also have a weekly um, newsletter now that's a uh, platformed at Substack, which is like, you know, half the world of writers seem to be there these days. And it's called, it's called The Cottage. And um, there's a free version and a paid version and people can just sign up for whichever they, they, they want to be part of. And um, I write essays there. Today, I've just started my own little podcast. It's a secret podcast. It'll be a little less secret Now
4: it's not secret anymore. (laughs) All all, all 12 of our listeners are going to know about it. That's right.
2: (laughs) It's called The Secret Garden at the cottage. And um, today, oh, you guys, it's so exciting. I interviewed Thomas Moore, who is 80 years old. And he was just, he wrote a book in 90, I think it was 92, called The Soul, The Care of the Soul, which was the really sort of first book big book in uh, that integrated spirituality and Jungian analysis and the sort of vision of what it means to be a soul friend. And so... I mean, he's an extraordinary writer, was a Roman Catholic monk, became a Jungian analyst, is kind of a Taoist now, He's been on an amazing journey. But he just wrote a really great book called The Soul Soul Therapy, Soul Therapy. And um, I invited him to come on my little podcast. And we had the best time just talking about how painful this moment is and how we can be friends to one another. When does that
0: episode release? I feel like I need it.
2: Um, sometime in the next few days to a week, um, we just recorded today, but that's the kind of stuff I love doing. And I'm just, I, I, I'm 62 and I feel like I'm just getting started (laughs) in certain ways. And so I'm trying out a lot of new things and I want to connect with people in lots of new ways. And I think that, um, I, I just, I love being a writer and I love being a trustworthy companion. Uh, to people who are struggling with their faith and point folks in a direction where they don't have to necessarily run away from God and they don't even necessarily have to reject Christianity but that together we can make it fresh and beautiful and uh, the 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 voices of the club don't have to win
4: beautiful stuff
2: Yeah. thank you so, so thank, much Anna. thank you, thank for you coming so on. much for being here you. thank you for having me
0: how cool was that? Thank you, Diana.
4: Yeah, it was uh it was fantastic to get uh Diana. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. Again, I don't know if the interview actually fits with our topic today, but such a great episode. I mean, we have to put it in somewhere, and why not sooner than later. So, yeah. Diana, thank you for coming on the show. Whoever booked Diana, uh, hats off to you. Was that
0: God damn it! I hate missing these great interviews. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she missed you too, Derek. She was like, she was kind of upset. Day. Yeah, she was. She yeah. almost like, you she know, like,
1: can we do it? I don't think we going to do it without without Derek. We talked to Completely. her. You know, we said, no, we have to. But yeah, you she talked don't. her
3: down. You guys are awesome. Down. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, so y'all, if if Diana Butler Bass were to take our quiz. Which heretic do you think she would be? Um, so let me preface this. Uh, we have a quiz on our website. So if you go to heretichappyhour.com, you can take this quiz, and the quiz will lead you through these really outstanding questions that we put a lot of time and thought into. And it will tell you which out of eight historical heretics you're most like. Which one do you all think Dian- Diana Butler Bass would be?
1: What are the options again? Remind me. It's, yeah. it's Mary, Harry, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. Without a Without a doubt.
0: Yeah, we have Mary Magdalene, Rumi. Rumi, yeah. Teresa Teresa, uh, Avalon.
1: Gandhi. Hmm. she uh, might be I, Teresa I, of Avila I was I was too. Say, I agree. I agree Katie I was about to say that I think she'd be Teresa of Avila
0: it's a mashup here between Teresa of Avila and Mary Magdalene well,
1: I,
3: I was roomy and I don't think she's as far out as I am so. <laughs> that's <laughs>
1: true I will agree with that
0: yes she has that kind of like scholarly writing yeah. on her desk like Teresa yeah. of Avila that's how I'm, I can see it So, well, yeah but you know there, there's something
3: very I don't know Katie I hate, uh, I'm, I'm going to pick on your term with something very metaphysical about her. You it's know? true.
1: Yeah.
0: It's true. So
3: I that's why I'm sorry. I, I hate that I missed it. I mean, because she's just fucking awesome. Yeah, she is
1: cool. Uh, that was cool. You know, I, I think I'm the one that got her on the show. And I I think I just messaged her on Twitter and asked her if she and she was like, Yeah, let's do it. And she actually she acted like she had heard uh she'd listened to us before and, and like she knew she said something like, You guys are doing great work, and I was like what? <laughs> you, you know we exist. Endorsement. Yeah, it was really cool. Awesome. endorsement.
3: She hey, don't, don't hurt she yourself. She says it to everyone. On the
1: back there, right? <laughs> it's right, like, awesome. It's for all of us. It's for all of us.
0: <laughs> well, so listeners, go ahead. Um, we would love for you to take the quiz and then tell us after you listen to the interview who you think Diana uh, Butler Bass would be too. So let's all take that quiz together.
4: Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So let's get into today's uh is this yes. the second pillar? We can't we can't put anything up yet, but <laughs> we've know. got a second pillar.
1: <laughs> How big do is this structure? <laughs> at at least well, you have to have at least four. It's
4: it's fucking huge. So um, you know, I, it, we've got two. And the second one, uh, you know, if you're reading the title, you're getting it uh, we're gonna talk about the the death of Jesus. And of course, we started this podcast in the way, way back on penal substitution. So that's how Christians typically talk about the death of Jesus. <laughs> Calm down, Derek. And then we even did a recent, more recent episode, right? It was uh, yeah. some time back.
0: It was, it I don't was remember when, but we talked episode.
4: about penal substitution. Oh, there you yeah. go. It's,
0: it's, it's been a while. Oh, yeah, that's it's correct. 16, that's 17 months, right. yeah. 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 yeah.
4: Okay, yeah. so here we are again. We're going to talk about penile substitution. No, we're not. No, we're not. I Let's take that we're back. Not. We're going to talk about but 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 how do we how do we talk about what questions if if that's not our lens anymore and we've already long established that what questions do we have and I'll, and I'll kick this off to you guys and gals Uh, about the cross, about Jesus. How do we even talk about it? What questions do we even ask about it? What questions about our questions do we ask?
1: Oh, so many. Um, Well, I mean, I'm sure you guys have some as well. I mean, but there's so many questions. I mean, this is why I wanted to do this series and and talk and cover some of these pillars and specifically this one, because it seems like this is such a confusing thing for a lot of people. Like why? People ask me all the time, why did Jesus have to die? And And if you do sort of like, suggest that penal substitution isn't the gospel, then that's usually the first question. Well, if if that's not the gospel, then why did Jesus have to die? Like what was, it was a waste of time if it wasn't to die in my place for my sins. And so, um, yeah, I think it's things like, you know, was there a ransom? Did God owe something or did who owed who what? Right. And um, did he really have to die? Was that sort of like, You know, he and why? If he had to die, then why? What did it accomplish? I guess I guess that's really what the question is, right? What what did his death accomplish, or did it accomplish anything? So it just throws up a lot of questions. And what do you got you guys may have questions as well when it comes to this this topic? Well, I
3: I think, you know, who owed whom what? I mean and and why. because the the conventional wisdom is that man incurred a sin debt in the garden. And and this sin debt persisted until God, in the fullness of time, sent forth His Son for the redemption of sins. But if we operate from the premise that God created everything and He said it was good, but then He said He created man and said this is very good and didn't walk that back, where where is the debt incurred? I mean, because you know, I, I look at like the law first mentioned. And I go back to Genesis and I try to find where this debt was incurred, that, that somehow something had to be remedied, something had to be redeemed. And I don't find it. And, and so when I, when I fast forward to Jesus and, and the conventional wisdom is well, he died to, for the atonement of our sins. Mm. Uh, and, and, and then when I, when I look at Jesus himself and his words, I don't really see where he mentioned that.
1: Right.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to keep mine like very simple. Instead of saying, why did Jesus have to die? I'm going to say, did Jesus have to die? Just taking off that one word adds a very different, I think, to me, um, kind of spin and connotation like, did Jesus have to die? Is is that the most essential thing? And I'm um, with
3: that question.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you. And and then the other one for me, I think it's kind of a parallel. Um, but what's, what's most important? Um, Jesus life, Jesus ministry, Jesus teachings, Jesus death, Jesus resurrection. Um, and kind of depending on where you fall on how you interpret all of those or how you see all those in history, you know, we have a lot of different answers. And I'll say I, you know, I think I, um, emphasize different points of those at different times in life and different kind of theological journeys. But as I mentioned, I went to this communion service today. Um, it was lovely. And we affirmed together the very the most, probably the most ancient um, uh, affirmation. I don't want to call it a creed because I don't come from a creedal tradition. But Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Th- I think those are all, uh, it's true, Christ has died. <laughs> um, whether you think Christ is risen or Christ will come again, you know, kind of is your own theological journey.
1: That's another episode. That's another episode. <laughs> <Yeah. but.
3: laughs> Long, longest refractory period in here in history. Right. Yeah.
1: But but see the thing when you talk about the creeds, see this is kind of my problem with the creeds is that they they do kind of leave out. It's like Jesus was born of a virgin and died on the cross. It's like, well, hold on a minute. There's a comma there, and that comma sort of like eliminated to me the most some of the most important things about Jesus, like all the red letters, the Sermon on the Mount, his whole life, everything he did and said, like. Uh, that's my problem with the creeds. If the creeds just included, you know, he was born of a virgin and, you know, he told us to love our enemy and bless those who curse us and do good to those who hate us and to love God and love others. And he gave us a command to love one another as he loved us. And then he was crucified. Like I'd be a lot happier. I like you just, but you just cut the heart out of that and to make it only about those things. To me, it just seems like you're missing the best part. I want to hear what Matt's questions are.
4: Well, oh, I, I like you. I, I. I like the when you you know, when Keith was asking the first questions, I was thinking about all the presuppositions that go into those questions that we have. And so I, I'm always, you know, I, I you you phrased it perfectly. Did Jesus have to die? Like I think about Jesus' life and would it have been just as important if he, like the Buddha, lived a long life and died in his sixties, seventies, eighties. And, and and there wasn 't this um this huge event would we still find him worth following worth studying worth learning about worth um you know him being a model like like it says a lot in john 's gospel about you know uh follow him mm-hmm. follow him to what like in how he <laughs> treats others or follow him to us dying right. a horrific yeah. death <laughs> yeah you know so it, it's really you know uh, Uh, what are you know? So those kind of questions, like, would would we need would Jesus be important if he didn't die such a brutal death? Um, you know, those kind of questions, I I think, are important questions. And too often we presuppose too much theology in our questions, not even our answers, but our questions.
3: And you know, I think that the big thing for Jesus. If there's anything, and this is what really resonates with me about the life of Jesus, is his teaching. The kingdom of God is within. Mm, Yeah. Where, Where where does this all begin for you? It begins inside. Where where does it transform in your mind? Where is it manifested in your actions? And all of that is is an inside out work and and so i think that even without the death or resurrection i think that jesus's importance as a teacher as a guru as a rabbi it is is fantastic i i, I honestly i think that too much emphasis is placed on the death or resurrection and too little emphasis placed on what he actually said to humanity.
0: So, one of my earliest memories um, is when I was three, and I I had the very common understanding that Jesus was thirty three when he was crucified. Although that comes from a um, miss missing miss chronology of the Gospels, um, but. The, I asked my parents, um, I would ask my parents how old they were. I don't, I don't know how well I could count, but they were more than 33 by the time they could answer me. And I, w- I got paranoid and I was getting so worried about it. And finally, my mom was like, honey, why are you so? What's, why do you keep on asking? She could see I was getting more and more worried. And I was like, well, you have to die when you're 33. So I thought that everyone had to die. Um, I don't know if I thought that everyone had to die in a cross, but like just that. Um, the weight of that story uh, was very present with me uh, when I was very small. And it was very freeing to me, like 30 years later, um, to come to the realization that really in, in classical Christian theology, it's the entire life of Christ that is salvific, not only the teachings, not only the death, not only the resurrection, the whole, the event of Jesus living is what is um, salvific for humans. And that I, I find a lot of comfort in because there's so much we don't know. But this event, this, the mystery of it um, to me now is very comforting.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I, I totally agree with that idea, Katie. I think that's awesome. That his whole life is so I nothing mean, Because the question, like you were saying, Matt, um, you know, if he would lived like an old, uh, it's a fascinating question. Like if he would lived a long, a good long life, right? If somehow he'd slipped, slipped through the the Romans' fingers or the Romans just said, you know what? Never mind. It's not worth it. And just let him go on. Um, and he just died as an old man. Would we not care about Jesus? Would it not have been important or interesting or you know important to listen to what he said and the things that he said and did? I would say how yes, much, right. How much
3: more could he have shown us
1: right
4: yeah it's um I don't know when I think about like his life and his death and what's emphasized and what's not i mean it's I think it's a good practice to always have balance in things, and I think Christianity, especially like the American Western Christianity that you know many of us come from overemphasizes the death. And, and it 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 almost turns it into a death cult. But I, I think there, I think there is imp- I, I think there can be valuable lessons about the cross and about, you know, Jesus's commitment to nonviolence, even, even towards, you know, like being executed. Like I think there's a lot of deaths throughout history where we can learn something like that. Um the uh the the monk the buddhist monk who lit right. himself on fire yeah. in the streets yeah. like it's not something no. i'm about to do <laughs> but but it's 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 very bold and it's very like eye opening and it it brings awareness to a cause and so you know i think i think something like that can bring awareness and 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 maybe change something unfortunately not all the time but so so it's a balance it's a balance between I think it's important to look at how Jesus died. But if we look at how Jesus died and we don't care about his life, I think we miss the entire point.
3: I, I think that Jesus would look at this whole, our, our whole veneration of the cross and say, what part of the cross do you fucking think is a good thing? <laughs> I think, I just honestly think what he, he would ask that question. You know, what part, what part of the cross did you guys really think is a good
1: thing? Right, and see, this is the thing. This is a great point, um, Derek. Like, the, I think there's a real practical thing that most Christians miss, because I think we just have this whole mythology that's things that have been overemphasized in, let's say, modern evangelical Christianity that weren't really emphasized so much in the in the in historical Christianity throughout throughout you know church history. Um, but it's reached the point where, yeah, this whole question of why did Jesus have to die and that basically he basically shows up going, hurry up, guys, I got to get to Jerusalem because I got to get crucified, you know, by, by the weekend. Like, th- like, that's the only reason he's here. I better hurry up and get crucified. Like, that's that's what I got to do. And, um, and like, honestly, when people ask me the question, why did Jesus have to die? I'll usually just say to them, why do you have to die?
3: That's a good question.
1: Well, because I'm human. Yeah, because I'm human. Exactly. And like, according to the New Testament, the way, the reason Jesus had to die was because he, like in Philippians 2, you know, he, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, took on the form of a man, a humanity and a servant. He, you know, he took on flesh. He became one of us and he became a servant to us. And the minute he did that, the second he decided to, to let go of his equality with God and, you know, being with God there, being worshipped by the angels night and day, to, to humble himself to be born as a baby and to take on human form, that's when he decided he was going to die. Because once he took on mortality, it was inevitable.
3: Mm,
1: and however point. he died, it was going it was going to happen. And it was and so it has significance because, again, in Christian theology, if if God took on flesh, and then that was a decision to die and to eat to share with us in our humanity. Um, Kenneth Tanner had a really fascinating response to that. Uh we were talking about it, and he said something about how, and well, I guess he got this from somebody else, but it was the idea that. Christ, that Jesus became fully became Christ at his um, crucifixion because at that, that until that point he had not fully experienced the entire human experience. So his incarnation was not complete until he tasted death because that's that's the end of the cycle. Right, every human being dies. Every human being is born, lives, and dies. And until he died, he had not truly fully. Uh, completed the incarnation at that point. I guess it's more the incarnation at that point. Um, But, yeah, I think when you look at the book of Acts, the way Peter and the other disciples describe what happened to Jesus, they call it a murder. Mm -hmm. They call it a killing, a slaughter, a slaying of an innocent man. You murdered. Yeah, a lynching you lynched an innocent man you murdered an innocent man that's the way they describe it they don't go oh this awesome thing that happened yay jesus was crucified no this was a horrific uh, injustice that was done an innocent person was brutally tortured and, and killed um and and again it's odd today that christians don't at least retain some measure of that same uh feeling that that's what the that's what it says in the uh, in the book of acts he was a murderer
0: So the, um, I think the one thing we can really say about the historical Jesus is that, um, he was crucified. It's the, I mean, it's like the earliest kind of testimony of the New Testament, uh, New Testament writers, Christ who was crucified, Christ who was crucified, Jesus who was crucified. And the fact that we're asking this question is very, I think, Revelatory of this, the, of the same question that early Christians were struggling with. They were also asking, did, why did Jesus have to die? Like, why did this person that we're choosing to follow have to die this death? And the, Jesus' death was embarrassing, um, to yeah. early Christians because mm-hmm. he died the death of a, of a criminal, of a enslaved person. And so, and mo- most gods would like come wouldn't have, wouldn't die um, in this way, um, and and not have to wait the full three days before coming back to life. And so they they struggled with that. And part of the miracle to me is that um, Paul especially was able to reframe Jesus' death into a kind of glory. You know, and I think yeah that we've talked about that can go too far, and I totally agree. Right when we're when we're deifying death. Um, that's not helpful. Like Jesus didn't come that we die, but that we may live. But the other thing I have is just a little joke to, um, have some insight into this. Cause this kills me every time I see it. Have you all seen the joke where it's like humans and aliens and the aliens are like, no, yes. Jesus comes around every year. Yes. The humans are like, well, how'd you get him to do that? Well, when he came to visit us, we gave him like chocolate
1: and, and yeah. goodies. What'd you guys do? <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. And they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're, humans are like, oh, uh, uh, never wow. mind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
3: you know, there, there's a great internet meme where it's, uh, it, it shows these aliens looking at a, a, a statue of Jesus on the cross, and they look at each other and they say, man, we really got to get the fuck out of here. Yeah,
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But, you know, it's it, within. I'm thinking of the um, like cross, crucifix, because I've I've been in a lot of Catholic settings uh, throughout my life where the crucifix is is really prominent, and Protestants tend to stay away from that. Um, but I'm also thinking of how many people I that I know personally who have taken great comfort actually in the suffering of Jesus, that Jesus suffered, and uh, some in the ways that they suffer. And that for them there is a lot of merit in the suffering of Jesus, and this is kind of the basis of like liberation theology too. That um, that Christ suffered um, not for the sake of suffering, but that Jesus knows what that is like when our when the human world is messed up and when people are suffering.
4: And I get why there's. Um, I think Jürgen Moltmann does a lot on the co-suffering yeah. of God, and sometimes, I mean, it sounds it, it can be a little off-putting at first, but. Honestly, like sometimes there is no answer to suffering other than the fact that someone suffers alongside you. Like I think too often, when it comes to the problem of suffering, we say too much. We try to give too many explanations. We try to give too many rationalizations. And sometimes the only thing you can do is just co suffer with someone and not say anything. And so I I think there's I think there's something to that.
3: You know, Mother Teresa had um, supposed that there is some glory in suffering, that there's something godly about suffering. And, and, and I, I disagree, because I'm thinking that if, if, if we consider that Jesus' death was some sort of sacrifice, that it was some sort of atonement, then that means his suffering would indicate the end of our suffering, just like his death indicates the end of our death. And yet, still humanity still suffers, and humanity still dies, and that that's something that that challenged me personally.
0: Go go a little further with that, Derek. Like, um, well, I'm curious. A follow up question, maybe. But can we have can we find something meaningful in the suffering of Jesus without it being related to atonement? You know what? I I don't see it,
3: and and that's that's just me because. Here's the thing, if if you if you suffer and and this is supposed to be a paradigm for humanity going forward, then it it stands to reason that the suffering would end. And and and, and my thing is that if we partake in the suffering of Christ, does that mean that suffering in the human sense would end? And, and, and that's, that's something that I struggle with because otherwise I'm asking the question, what's the point? I, I'm, I'm just asking myself and I'm asking you guys, honestly, if, 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 if Jesus is our archetype and he suffered and the, the premise is, okay, so w- one of the things that, that we talk about in standard religion is that Jesus died so we don't have to die. And Jesus was raised so that we would conquer death ourselves. So if, if this, we're leading up to the death, the suffering, then the death, then the resurrection, then that means these are steps that we no longer have to go through. And that's the, again, that's the challenge for me. Do we, why do we have to go through this if Jesus is Death, burial, and resurrection is to mean something, and 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 by receiving him or acknowledging him, that somehow this is going to uh, benefit our lives. Then I, I'm, I'm struggling to see where the where the benefit is.
4: I get I, I get where you're coming from. I, I frame it in a little bit different way. I um, so bear with me the the practice of sacrificing to the gods is uh, assumed before Jesus. It's presupposed, it's practiced. There's a long history of that. The way I look at it, and maybe this isn't exactly to do with suffering and co-suffering, but I I say, what better way for God to to reject the practice of sacrifice than to um, basically... Turn a de- a dead sacrifice into a living sacrifice, and so so if you can't talk about the cross without the resurrection and it's almost the way I see it is the rejection of the sacrifice in that in that Jesus then is, is made alive so if if, um, if it's an accepted sacrifice to the gods, the, the sacrifice remains dead, and then the blessings come come forth from the heavens open up and give you rain or whatever you need. But in, but in this way, it's almost as if God rejects the sacrifice by giving it back to, to, the, to the people who he made the sacrifice to. So
3: let, let me kick it back at you then. What's, what's the benefit? What's the benefit? What do we gain? From this,
4: and I, I would say that the benefit would be that we no longer have to see the gods as as those who demand sacrifice, and it gets turned back on us to say that this is a system that we came up with, mm-hmm. and that God has no part in.
1: Yeah, see, I agree. I, I think it's a huge part, Matt, that you're that you're keying in on. It's this this idea, and see, Paul talks about it a lot in his in his epistles, and I think we misunderstand. It's been misapplied. I, I think misunderstood to say that Jesus brought an end to sacrifice. This is how Jesus brings an end to sacrifice, but it, it's we have to first acknowledge that this whole idea of sacrifice is something that needed to be ended and that God needed to I think it's just one of the one of the things that could be we could say that it was accomplished in, on the cross is that exactly what Matt is saying, right? Before Jesus, the sacrificial system was assumed God demands it. God wants it, requires it and needs it. Uh, he is wrathful and angry. We had to appease him and his anger and his wrath. Something innocent must bleed and die on the, on the altar. And then once that is accomplished, everything is good, right? We Now, now we're all good. Everything We have this, this atonement. And this, there's this great reversal that happens it, with Jesus. And, and I think Paul is the one that kind of tries to point it out, is to say, hey, by the way, um, in a way, what Jesus did was to re- turn this thing on its head. So instead of this picture of an angry, wrathful God who requires this something innocent to die so that, um, you know, everything can be right again between God and, and, and the people, the great reversal is God's not wrathful. We are. We're the ones full of wrath and anger towards God. And God says, you know what? Do what you want. I put myself into this physical body so that I can feel pain. I can be tortured. I can be beaten. I can be nailed to a cross and killed. Do your worst. And what I will do is endure that and suffer that as a way of saying, number one, I never wanted this. This was never my idea. By the way, it was your idea. And I'll, I'll endure your wrath on this altar, on this cross. And when I come back, I'm going to say, are we done now? Can we, can we put this aside? This whole sacrificial thing. I never wanted it. It was never my idea. And let's move on. And so that, so to me, there's this like crucial thing that Jesus had to do was he had to bring an end to a sacrificial system in our minds so that we finally go, you know what? This sacrificial system is bullshit. Let's stop killing stuff to make God happy. We don't need to do this anymore. It's not the way God operates. It's not the way we think. And even in some weird way, even if we don't sort of like consciously understand that, uh, as Christians, even today, I think anybody today would would um at least in let's say the western mindset a- influenced by western christianity um would would look at any other religious system that was sort of like yeah we're gonna we're gonna pull out the goat and kill it we're gonna we're gonna bleed out the chicken here you'd be like, what what's wrong with you people right? We have moved on from sacrificial systems we we see sacrifice in the religious context as something kind of like um, disgusting and kind of like gross and like dumb. Why would no, what are you doing? And so I, I think that's one of the things that Jesus is doing. Unfortunately, because of PSA, Christians have gone back to say, no, that is what God wants. He does demand a sacrifice and that is the way he relates to us, which is to me is reversing the whole thing. So I have,
0: I will say, I'm mildly to moderately uncomfortable with the sacrificial sort of like into sacrifice because, um, the, like I can feel all my Jewish friends and colleagues saying, what are y'all talking about? Y'all don't, y'all don't even know. So I feel like we might be reading what had the destruction of the temple in 70 backwards, like where that, that event happened. And so there's an end to sacrifice, you know, contemporary Jews are not sacrificing, uh, either. Um, contemporary Samaritans are though, just FYI. Um, yeah, and, and there are religions that do still practice animal sacrifice. Um and so I I'm not I'm not sold on the system that sacrifice is like this horrible, terrible um religious system. Uh I'm 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 not sure I see the innate problem with that, but I see in I mean I don't I don't particularly want to practice it, but I don't see a problem with it like as a religious system, because it can be done very ethically. Jesus went to the temple to offer sacrifice. Or you know, or early Christians were doing that until the year 70, until the until the temple is destroyed. So I feel like that theory is also like taking that temple event And then we, again, just like with the death of Jesus, early Christians were like, what do we do with this? With the destruction of the temple, I feel like we were, we, early Christians were also like, what do we do with this? And one of those answers is kind of the end that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. But I'm very uncomfortable with Jesus as the, as the ultimate sacrifice, which, and Keith, I really liked what you said about, um, yeah, just the kind of turning that back on its head, like, um, Jesus is sacrifice, but not as a willing. Um, or not as a not as the ultimate sacrifice, but in spite of the system. Um but I'm I'm I wonder what would happen if we kind of took sacrifice out of it out of it as a benefit or non-benefit. Like maybe that's not um why would Jesus was on the cross.
3: And, and you know what, Katie, I'm like you. I'm I'm uncomfortable with the whole concept of sacrifice. And I and I'll tell you something that pisses me off about modern Christianity is this whole thing is that we have to live a life sacrificial unto God. So if, if, if we say that, that Jesus' sacrifice was the ultimate sacrifice, but then sacrifices continued until 70 CE, but then they ended. But now we're expected to resurrect the sacrifice, which says to me that in terms of modern Christianity, we crucify Jesus all over again and we, and we re, we rebuild or re erect the temple and all of its ceremony. And, and if, if all of that is past, then has passed, but that's not, that's not the way modern Christianity interprets it. it. There, there is some sacrifice that's still expected. And that's something that, that challenges me.
4: Hey, I'm, I'm curious on, on why, or what would, be, what would be the point in sacrifice and why, why you're not totally against it? Like, does it, is it anything more than a placebo effect on, on, on appeasing gods? Or what would be the point in, in killing an animal for, for, for some sort of ritualistic thing?
3: I mean, that's, whether, whether it's killing an animal or, or sacrificing something, some activity, some behavior, some thought, it doesn't matter because
4: it- hey, I'm not I'm not saying that that Jews particularly had some sort of barbaric practice. In fact, I think they took us away from a barbaric practice. That's how actually how I read the uh, Abraham and Isaac story. Like I see that as as a way moving forward in humanity. But what would be any sort of benefit of any sacrifice?
0: Well, so, uh, um, there's lots of different kinds of sacrifices. There's not just appeasing an angry God sacrifice. Um, there's, an, there's sacrifices of gratitude. There's also first fruit sacrifices, harvest sacrifices. It's not only, it's not only animal and it's not only to appease an angry God. Um, and so, and actually, I think that rituals are very powerful ways for us to enact our spirituality. It doesn't have to be through a temple through an animal sacrifice. Yeah,
3: um, but the weight of Jesus is the end of that covenant, Katie. Does it? Is, is there any need for sacrifices going forward? I don't believe that.
0: I believe that Christianity is um, that we are continuation. I don't believe that it's the end of
1: a system. So we're still under the old covenant
0: then? Yeah, yeah. We had this conversation. We had this conversation a long time ago. No, I don't believe in this old covenant, new covenant. Okay. I just, yeah, I just don't. So, and so I, for me, there's no need to end. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, for me, there's no need to end a system. There's no need for these kind of binary end beginning of system. Um, Jesus was a faithful Jew who went to the temple to offer sacrifice.
1: Well, where do you see that? To be honest, where, where do you see Jesus offering a sacrifice? I, I can find a place where Jesus, like when he healed the leper, he told him to go to the show himself to the priest and offer sacrifice. But mm-hmm. I don't know that I see a reference for Jesus so, himself offer a sacrifice. Yeah,
0: I guess I'm a, I guess I am assuming something in there. Um but when so I think Jesus was critiquing the inflation system around the temple when he overturns the tables. Yes. Yeah. And the implication I is mean, that but, he is there to offer sacrifice. But, but your, he chases the animals out of the temple.
1: But he t- but he chases the animals out of the temple, the money changers yeah. and, and the sheep and the cattle out of the temple. But, so like but, 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 for that week there was no they couldn't buy and sell because he took that place over and ran them out. But,
3: but here's the thing, Katie's inference is fair because if Jesus was called rabbi, then, then that means he was well inculcated in the Jewish temple system. And and Jewish. that would infer yeah. that would infer that if he is operating in that office then he did indeed offer sacrifice. I mean that that's a fair assumption yeah, based I on mean, that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, if, if there was a huge protest I think the New Testament would I mean this is an argument from silence but it would sort of mention that. But also if I would like if I had such a problem with animal sacrifice I'd be a vegetarian and I'm not. I flirt with it sometimes. I go through periods where I'm a vegetarian but I'm not. Not me. Like yeah. But <laughs> but, but, the, Meat but smoker over
1: here. Yeah, but Kill the pig, pig, yeah, kill I the mean, pig. Killing animals to eat them, you could people do that all over the place and they don't think of that that's as what, a sacrifice. That's what happens, yeah, but that's what happens at a temple. Like
0: the animal is killed and then the meat is Right. But there's given a, there's a religious the element
1: involved in that, yeah. right, that's different than at the slaughterhouse or the steakhouse. Yeah,
0: but I think that the, also the other element, I think, where we're sort of imposed, in my view here, we're imposing some kind of modern values around sacrifice that were not necessarily true in the ancient world. Um So in the ancient world, people ate meat very seldom, very seldom, usually only at festivals. Um, and so the animals that were sacrificed, there was going to be a lot more of those sacrificed around like Passover, for instance. And this is true in the pagan world, too. It's not only the Jewish world. Um, but when animals are sacrificed and then the meat is sold and given back to the people for these big feasts. And that's the mo- that's a major source of protein that a lot of people had. So it's also some kind of like functional um, purposes, actually, for sacrifice for people to be able to have affordable uh, meats which normally they wouldn't have, um, and so that's why the whole there's this whole uh, concern in First Corinthians about whether or not people should eat the meat that has been sacrificed to idols.
1: Right. So, As again, well. just 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 so I understand. <laughs> so then, in your opinion, then um, when Paul talks about the end of the old covenant, the old covenant's obsolete and fading and vanishing, and Hebrew says the old covenant is obsolete. You, you don't agree with that? Or you think well, that means something else?
0: Yeah, I have my, like, my New Testament scholar hat on here. I, I see why people were coming to those theological conclusions. They're not the only theological conclusions. But I don't think that um, sort of saying, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm bristling against like, Jesus' death means the end of sacrificial system, which was obviously horrible because it kind of like lumps Judaism into this obsoletism. That's that makes me very uncomfortable um, because so many of my Jewish friends have been so hurt by that in this e- in evangelicalism. So I'm trying to also find a way to build some bridges h- here among our groups um, with using some different language.
3: So, Katie, I, I, I need to I need to find out the next time that you do an animal sacrifice. I, I, <laughs> need, I need to be I need to be tuned in. Because I, I think that that would just be fucking awesome. Live, I, I'm stream, gonna, live stream, live stream. Yeah. Patrons, yeah, maybe
1: for our patrons. Yeah, I'm out of baby goats. I need to go get a couple new ones. Yeah. <laughs> hey, 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 a chicken <laughs>
0: will do. I don't, don't have the do. priestly training. I don't have the priestly training. So I'll have to go to uh, ancient, ancient you, rabbinic school. You, you,
3: you do have a doctorate in theology. So. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> it quits me for not that, but we'll see. Maybe, maybe. I'll And then you can smoke it. Hey, maybe you could do that while you're in London. That would be great. (laughs) Live from London, Katie Valentine. I I blessedly fly out tomorrow.
4: (laughs) Well, I think we could do, we could even do a part two of this because I I feel like um, we're we're over an hour into this episode and and it seems like we've got a good another hour. But um, we are going to have to wrap it up for now, folks. And, and, and look, normally we solve all the problems. I don't know if we solve the problem on this, on this episode. But <laughs> no, uh, you we know, we, we do have bonus things that uh, maybe Keith can talk about how you can access that. But before we, uh, before we let him do that, I just want to remind everyone that we have a website. It was mentioned earlier in the show, but it's heretichappyhour.com. Like Katie said, you could take that quiz, find out which uh, heretic you are. Once you take that quiz, check out the bookstore. Of all of our favorite Heretics of the weeks, they have books. We have them for sale. We have merch. We have other goodies on heretichappyhour.com.
0: Well, if y'all want to see that live sacrifice, come on over to Heresy After Hours. It's our free <laughs> Facebook group where obviously I'm going to be live streaming the <laughs> <laughs> sacrifice once I get the techniques Ooh. down. No, I can't imagine. So this, ah, is, this yes, is where great. I'm like, I am going to become more vegetarian now. Uh, yeah, so Heresy After Hours is our free Facebook group for everyone. Um, we have hysterical things that go on in there. So come join us. Get all the goodies uh, firsthand in
1: that group. And all four of us are in there uh, putzing around. Yes. Putzing around. And speaking of Patreon, um, if you love this podcast and who doesn't, uh, you need to head over to patreon.com slash heretic happy because you know what, not only by becoming a financial supporter of this podcast, will you, uh, also get yourself a free ticket straight to heaven. You and your family uh, completely absolved of all your sins and, you know, just detour straight around. No hell at all. And We guarantee this by the way. Um, not only that, I mean, for like, we're talking five dollars a month. People, come on, this is a great deal. Uh, you also unlock on top of that amazing bonus episodes, interviews, all kinds of fun stuff. You can download PDFs of our books. Uh, it's so cool! I can't believe you're not there already. Go over there and check it out: patreoncom Hour. And
3: if you love the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, please go out to iTunes and give us a five star rating. And by giving us a five star rating you will absolve yourself of the need for any future animal sacrifices. (laughs) Unless unless you're Katie, which Katie is going to have to do this. We're we're looking for the live stream. But you, the listener, gentle listener, because of Katie's noble sacrifice, (laughs) you won't have to in your five-star rating. God bless you.
1: I wonder what what animals are acceptable. I mean, could, would a, would a gerbil be okay? A spider is a spider uh, okay? Unclean. That's not my yeah, clean. Unclean.
3: It, unclean. a mammal?
1: Unclean. Yeah. No, that's a lamb. Can, yeah,
4: can. We, can, we can sacrifice my puppy. <laughs> oh, I'm fine with that. Oh,
3: dogs are, yeah. are clean.
0: <laughs> Yo, this is good. Y'all send Matt the hate mail, not me. Yeah. I'm out.
1: That's another. I don't, I don't like. I don't <laughs> like
3: my dog either, but I won't sacrifice him because he's unclean.
1: That's another blog post, Matt. Your next blog post should be on sacrificing your puppy. (laughs)